Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST app, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 10 in our series for 2019, and today's date is Friday, April the 5th. First, I'll be talking to Louise Havala, co-founder of Gatehouse Legal Recruitment and founder of new startup Elivery, which is leading the legal profession into the future by connecting ASX-listed companies, private businesses and law firms with highly experienced expert freelance lawyers for work opportunities, contracts and projects. Within a year, Elivery has over 700 users and is looking to raise capital later in 2019 to capitalise on this growth. And I'll be talking to economist Stephen Gakoulis about where the economy is heading and what the RBA is going to do. But first, let's talk to Louise Havala. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Now, Louise Vala, tell us about Elifery. Well, Elifery is an online platform connecting businesses such as ASX-listed companies, private practice law firms and um, just small to medium-sized enterprises with freelance expert lawyers. Um, and the expert lawyers have an average of 15 years' experience and we've, we're giving companies access to those, those people. So which lawyers have you recruited? They are former general counsels, uh, former partners. Um, They have worked both locally in Australia and overseas. So they're quite, and their backgrounds vary from obviously commercial to banking and finance, litigation, uh, family law. How many lawyers do you have? 
We have 200 on our books at the moment and they're Australia-wide. So which companies are coming to you? Which companies? They are ASX listed. So um, they are companies with in-house legal teams, small to medium-sized enterprises and private practice law firms, right from the national law firms to the smaller boutique law firms. Why has there been an increase in freelance lawyers? There are a couple of reasons why, but what we're seeing um, through our main business, Gatehouse, where we do all the permanent recruitment... And you were were actually a co-founder of Gatehouse, weren't you? Yes, correct. Um, What we're seeing is people are wanting more, obviously, flexibility. They want to be able to spend time with their children, travel the world. Um, they're, They're tired of the old school ways within law, so they've got better ways of doing things. And some some of them realise that reaching partnership level might be a very uh, long process um, if they get there at all. So they've decided to obviously establish themselves as a sole practitioner for providing freelance services um, to clients. And I guess when you set yourself up as a freelancer through an agency such as yours, you don't have all the infrastructure costs that comes with setting up your own practice. Correct. Would that be correct? Correct. What would be the interests of companies doing this? Well, they get access to experts, first of all. They also get access to them at a cheaper rate because they're not carrying the traditional um, overheads as a traditional law firm would. How much cheaper? Up up to 50% cheaper. So, for example, we had one, one freelancer offer a day rate of a thousand and a thousand dollars per day and another we also looked at engaging someone within a firm to do a, the same project and they quoted two and a half thousand dollars per day for that particular lawyer to, to go out on the job so it's it's increased savings there for, for businesses whereas if businesses did that in-house it would cost them more, more money correct yeah do the freelancers set their own rate Yes, they do. So their clients can provide a budget, um, but if they don't have that budget, then freelancers will set their own rate and say, look, I can do this project for X amount. How do they reach that rate? Do, they, do you give them advice or anything like that? I think it's, it's market trend, so what's, what others are providing, what they've done on similar projects. So they'll look at their past projects as well and say, okay, I quoted that project which is quite similar on this this basis so I think it's going to be the same for that. So I mean do, do any of them work together on projects? I mean so sometimes lawyers team up on issues. Do, do you actually see them team up? Do you actually help them team up on projects? We do help them team up on projects. What we also do is we also help them to cross-refer to another obviously freelancer so if one freelancer is inexperienced in commercial contracts but they're not experienced in litigation, then we're seeing them obviously cross-refer to another freelancer to get that expertise. So how much contact would these freelancers have with each other? Um, Not often, like not a lot of contact, um, but when the need arises, the, the system's there for them to be able to connect with each other. So you create the hub that allows them to connect? Correct. And they would come to you and say, look, I've got this contract on uh, building law, 
but uh, it involves litigation and I need someone in litigation. What can you do for me? Yeah. And, they, and you would refer them to someone? Correct, yes. Uh, this, is, this is a fairly recent sort of trend, isn't it, in the legal industry? Yes, I, it is a recent trend, um, but I think the we're just seeing more of it happening um, from our both clients wanting it and our lawyers wanting to do more freelance or contract-based work. So what's driving this trend? The drivers are more flexibility from the freelancer's point of view, from the lawyers. Um, as well as the client, they're, they're wanting different ways of accessing, obviously, experts and talent. Um, going to a, a top-tier firm, it could be... 600 plus an hour whereas coming to a freelancer it's it's 300 350 an hour um so i think they're the the key drivers there and just with the shift of um just with the way society is going people want to be more entrepreneurial and want to run their own business and not having and i think the other key driver is they're not wanting to do billable hours so lawyers by 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 trade they they bill in six-minute units, so a lot of them are moving away from that. They don't want to do it anymore. A lot of that is uh, lifestyle changes, isn't it? Yeah, life change, lifestyle changes as well. Can you explain that? So um, some of the freelancers, they're wanting to obviously spend more time with their children or pick up their children from school. So others are wanting to um, travel more so that they're able to pick up a project while they're travelling in another country. Um, some are just tired of the nine to five routine within um, law, or the longer hours they're actually doing. Some are doing quite long hours, so they they want a change of that as well. Some are also wanting to do pursue other hobbies, so they might have a passion for dancing, say. So they want to be able to pursue that or start up a new business on the side as well as do law. So I think that's where it's why people are choosing this this career. That, that's interesting. Now, now you and you, you obviously see this trend ahead. You see this trend increasing, don't you? Yes, we do. Now, you you you're based in Melbourne, but you deal with ASX listed companies. So, does that mean you deal with companies all across Australia? Yes, all across Australia. Um, so, they their head office might be in Melbourne, or it might be in Sydney. Um, but then we help them. Then they might have branches in other states as well. So how does that work? Uh, dealing with companies in other states and cities, uh, there's no face to face with yourself. I mean, how does that work? We do make an effort to go see them when the need arises. Um, but otherwise, it's all done through phone calls, Skype. Just with technology these days, um, it's you're able to access people quite quickly. And same with the freelancers, like a client in Sydney might engage someone in Melbourne because that the person they need has their expertise in Melbourne. For example, we've got a client that wants a freelancer, specifically a freelancer in cryptocurrency. So we're basically on the hunt for that person that's got cryptocurrency experience and he doesn't care where they're based. He says, I'm not even fussed if they're based overseas, but they have the Australian knowledge in cryptocurrency. Now... Do you see your company expanding overseas? Uh, yes, definitely. Can you tell me about that? 
Yeah, so I think the um, next markets we will target is, or the next areas we'll target is the UK and America. Um, we'll definitely go UK first because of the uh, similar jurisdictions, um, and then we'll head over to to the US also. How would you how would you go about doing that? How would we go about doing that? That's right. Um, connection. So we've got uh, affiliates in the UK already through Gatehouse. Um, so we would contact them and see. Um, we would we would expand, obviously, with them. We would associate ourselves with them to expand further in those markets. And do you have affiliates in the US as well? Yes, we do. Very different legal market. It is different. We're um, actually through Gatehouse. We're about to um, a US firm is. Uh, requested us to find five lawyers from Australia to head over to the US. Um, so we're in the process of doing that through Gatehouse, which is really exciting. So when do you when do you plan to expand overseas? What's well, your time frame for that? Probably within the next 12 months. Well, that's going to be very exciting. It is very exciting. And, uh, and uh, we'll be watching this company get bigger and bigger, along with Gatehouse. Yes. Well, Louise, it's been fascinating talking to you. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. And now let's talk to economist Stephen Kakoulis. Well, Stephen Kakoulis, uh, our economy is now in a per capita recession. The only thing that's keeping it going is population growth and the government in the lead up to the New South Wales election announced it was putting a cap on immigration. And uh, the real estate prices are falling uh, and... uh, our GDP is heading nowhere. What's your view about the economic outlook? Yeah, we, we, I think you've summed it up um, a bit depressingly, but I think you're reasonably accurate because we've got this situation right now where uh, economic growth is below population growth. So as you mentioned, in per capita terms, we're actually going backwards, which is not good news. And those numbers were for the September and December quarters 2018. And here we are in April, the March quarter obviously just finished. And all the indicators for the March quarter is that it's probably going to be another quarter where GDP is again below population growth, that um, it'll be lucky to be 0.4%, which is sort of um, disappointing. We know retail sales were weak in the early months of the March quarter. We know that building approvals were heading down. Uh, So when you sort of do the early um, jigsaw puzzle on what GDP for the March quarter is going to be, it's going to be another subdued quarter. So, um, the economy's not in not good shape, and you can see why business and consumer sentiment, therefore, is in in pretty weak levels. That you know nobody's really that optimistic about the economic outlook. That these pressures are still unfolding, and I think the the two critical issues that we're going to be dealing with now and looking at for the next few months in terms of how the economy is performing is firstly the global economy, obviously very important to Australia. It's weakening. And then this thing that we've been chatting about for for quite a while now, but it's continuing to unfold, is the decline in house prices and the impact that has on on wealth and consumer spending. So global economy, housing and house prices in particular are the two hot topics. And of course, the business and consumer confidence figures are down too. They are, yes, indeed, both down from where they were, say, six to 12 months ago. 12 months ago, people business and consumers, were reasonably optimistic. You know, the the economy was muddling along, it was growing uh, at a reasonable pace, the housing downturn hadn't really taken hold. And if we remember back 12 months ago, the impact of the uh, US Trump 
tax cuts, if we can call them that, were still buoying the U.S. economy. The U.S. economy was booming, in fact, because of those uh, huge tax cuts in the U.S. Now, they've faded from uh, the U.S. economy and even its pricing and interest rate cuts over the course of the next 12 to 24 months. So consumers, you know, we're not silly. We, we know what's happening to our money. We're not getting big wage increases either. The business sector is having trouble making money, partly because we consumers aren't spending. And this housing downturn is actually impacting on retail, because if you get a housing slump, sales of carpets and white goods and these sorts of things also decline. People just aren't buying new fridges and washing machines if there's not many houses being built. So this is the sort of um, $64 question, I suppose, when we mull over just how the economy is performing. Now, uh, some people are saying on the plus side, employment uh, looks pro- uh, looks positive. Unemployment has gone down to 4.9%. But I would say to that, the devil is in the detail, isn't it? I mean, you've got that's all predicated on a lower participation rate. I think you've summarised it quite well there because uh, yeah, the unemployment rate is actually quite good. 4.9, yes, that's not bad in anyone's language. And the employment numbers are still pretty good. Now, a couple of things there. One is that we do know, and over, gosh, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, we know that employment does lag the business cycle. And by that, I mean it takes a while for firms to change their labour hiring in response to the economy. So if you think of an example, this is just a stylized example. If your economy and your business slows down, you don't sack staff after one month of weakness. You go, oh, just a temporary bit of a lull. It could be any reason. Two months, you'll probably continue to, well, I'll hold on to my staff. Um Uh, I'm just not sure whether this is lasting, but when you get to three and four and five months of economic weakness, that's when you get firms saying, well, I'm not going to hire any more people. Overtime hours will be cut. And in this um, insecure work environment that we've got now, the labour market does weaken. The other thing to remember too, of course, is that we've got a very high underemployment rate. That's people who have a job that want to work more hours. It's still above 8%. And even at the worst point of the global financial crisis, it didn't get above 8% at all. And here we are now, it's already above 8%. So that whole labour market issue, yes, it, it, it's superficially pretty good. Um, but as you said, if you scratch beneath the surface, you can see some um, some pretty big problems that are still there in the labour market. And while they remain, uh, wages growth is not going to go anywhere. Now, of course, uh, with the budget, they're forecasting a... Surplus, but that surplus is for 2019-20, which kicks in on July the 1st, 2019. Yes. And uh, that's, of course, that will be after the election. Uh, now, yes. Now, uh, uh, the issue, though, is uh, uh, with the economy weakening, can we expect a surplus? Well, that's the $64 question. If the economy remains firm and, and uh, keeps growing at sort of 2.75 or 3%. Yeah, we'll get a surplus. There's no risk. But that's what we've just been discussing indirectly, I suppose, that if we don't get that sort of economic growth, then the, the revenue flow into the um, into the government sector will just not be there. So in, in analysing the gory details of the budget forecast, it'll be important to see just how rosy uh, Treasury is. And if there's any shortfall, and I've been around long enough, I was working on budgets when the surpluses looked pretty much assured, Lo and behold, three months later, the Chinese economy slowed down. The iron ore price fell. We had a slightly disappointing unemployment result coming through. And all of a sudden, that surplus that was um, looked, you know, looked to be very well based, very well forecast, was was undermined. It doesn't take much for the revenue to the government to slow. So 
if if the economy just even marginally underpins uh, underperforms, I should say, what Treasury is forecasting, then all of a sudden you're going to have that surplus disappearing very quickly. But as you said, that'll be for the new government to uh, worry about. Indeed, indeed. That's actually quite accurate. And now, where does this leave the RBA? I mean, you've been saying all of this means yes. the RBA should be cutting rates, and I notice some economists... Uh, uh, analysed by the Financial Review this morning, was saying there won't be any rate cuts and there won't be any rate rises uh, for the rest of this year. Uh, but uh, some are tipping rate cuts, like AMP. Uh, what, what's your view? AMP, and I think Westpac and NAB have come on board the rate cut, but not until later in this year. And I, look, I think they do have to cut. You know, the scenario that we just discussed at the beginning in terms of weak housing, falling wealth, the slowing global economy are really important to us. And the Reserve Bank... Um, have been a bit slow to cut rates, I would argue, already, because we do know that inflation is below their target. It's um, currently at 1.9% uh, in annual terms. We get the uh, March quarter figures on the 24th of April, I think it is. They're going to confirm inflation falling even further. So they're, they're sort of missing their inflation target on the downside. And when the economy has also got downside risks, in my view, they're going to have to cut, you know, not just once, but a couple of times over the next few months, not necessarily to rescue the housing market as such, although obviously it'll help the housing market with lower uh, mortgage rates, but it's to push the dollar down, give our exporters a bit of extra competitiveness. It'll help the business sector too, because remember, the business sector also have a large level of debt, They're just under a trillion dollars, and if they're paying a lower interest rate on their uh, level of debt, then of course it improves their cash flow. So there are a few moving parts here, but I think the RBA... Look, if it's not um, in the very near term, at some stage over the course of this year, they'll have to cut a couple of times. A couple of times. That means our interest rate will go down to 1%. It means 1%, and uh, the risk is that it's even lower. The other fascinating thing that's unfolding too is not just this um, discussion on RBA rates, it's actually government bond yields, government bond interest rates. The 10-year bond is 1.75%. That's the lowest ever recorded, and those numbers go back... Uh, 60 or 70 years in terms of the history on uh, government bond yields. So we've actually got our bond market at 1.75%, which is just extraordinary when you consider that the economy you know, is, well, it's going through this difficult period. And uh, it's, it's implicitly saying that the average interest rate over the next 10 years will be 1.75%. It's just in, incredibly low interest rates at the moment. And that's not a reflection of a good economy. On the contrary, it's more because we do have these problems. We have this low inflation built into the economy. We have downside risks to wages. And the wealth effect from the falling housing market is impacting on investment uh, decisions. And they're buying bonds at these incredibly low yields. Well, that will be a fascinating uh, scenario as we head into the election, Stephen. It is. And the election probably, well, either the 11th or the 18th of May. I'm not privy to what Mr Morrison's thinking about the date. So the election, whichever way you cut it, it's only sort of five or six or seven weeks away at the, at the most. And, the, and, of course, it's the economy that matters. It's the sort of most dominant thing that people vote on. You know, tax policy and things are important too. But if the economy has... Uh, over this next five or six weeks of the election campaign has some disappointing news on the labour market. If we have a low um, inflation reading, if we have more wages data that's confirming wages growth are chronically weak, then, of course, it's not a good time to be the Treasurer. And, um, and, and as we said, consumers, they are voters, of course, after all. And if they're feeling pretty gloomy about the economic outlook, they tend to take it out on the incumbent government. Well, it'll be fascinating to watch. And Stephen Gakoulis, thank you very much for your time again.
Thank you, Leon. A pleasure as always. So what's happening in the news? Well, China's first official economic gauge for March signalled a stabilisation of the world's second largest economy, easing one of the biggest worries for the global outlook. The Manufacturing Purchasing Managers Index rose to 50.5 from 49.2 last month, the biggest increase since 2012, and exceeding all estimates by economists. Both new orders and new export orders, leading sub-gauges that signal future activities, rose to the highest levels in six months. That's good news for global investors, as China's weakening demand had weighed on sectors such as auto producers and commodity exporters worldwide. However, with tariffs and uncertainty about whether a deal with the US will be signed weighing on trade, and no sign of a rebound in domestic consumption, there's still a way to go. The World Trade Organization slashed its global trade growth projection for 2019 to the lowest level in three years, citing the impact of rising commercial tensions and tariffs. World merchandise trade growth will slow to 2.6% this year and 3% next year, after notching 3% in 2018, the WTO said in its report. In September, the WTO said trade would increase by 3.9% in 2018 and 3.7% in 2019. The reduced forecast for 2019 marks the second consecutive year the WTO has pared back expectations and broadly reflects similar readings from the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund. The revised figures provide an important gauge of the stakes involved in President Donald Trump's economic fight with China early a year after the initial salvos of a trade war were fired. At the same time, International Monetary Fund Managing Director Christine Lagarde said that global growth has lost momentum amid rising trade tensions and tighter financial conditions, but pauses in rate hikes will help boost activity in the second half of 2019. Lagarde, in a preview of the April 12-14 IMF and World Bank Spring meetings, said the global economy is unsettled after two years of steady growth, with the outlook precarious and vulnerable to trade, Brexit and financial market shocks. And to Australia. And Prime Minister Scott Morrison's government pledged sweeping tax cuts and forecast Australia's first surplus in more than a decade in a budget aimed at engineering a come-from-behind election victory. The Treasury projected a $7.1 billion surplus for the fiscal year through to 2020, or $3 billion more than its December estimate. That's handed Morrison ample ammunition to promise tax relief to about 10 million voters ahead of an expected May election. The Morrison government budget promises an estimated $158 billion in promised tax cuts over a decade. It foreshadows tax cuts of up to $1,080 a year for about 10 million low and middle income earners. It will reduce the tax rate for small businesses by 2.5 percentage points to 25% by fiscal 2022. The Coalition will also seek to flatten tax brackets by 2024, cutting the 32.5% tax brackets to 30%. But Treasurer Josh Frydenberg confirmed on Tuesday night the government will refuse to legislate the tax relief until after the May election, despite Labor offering to back the cuts in Parliament this week. It will seek to legislate a $75 one-off energy payment to pensioners this week. That leaves a tight time frame for the tax cuts to be legislated before July the 1st, raising the prospect that workers could miss out on a bumper tax return in this financial year. We will ask the Australian people... Who do you trust to deliver lower taxes, Mr Frydenberg said. Under the changes, an annual tax offset for low and middle income earners will be more than doubled 
from $530 to $1,080, meaning someone earning between $46,000 and $90,000 will receive a rebate starting at the, at the end of his financial year of $1,080. That's about the same as one week's wages after tax for someone on average weekly earnings. This more than matches Labor's pledge to deliver an end-of-year rebate of $928 for the same 10 million people. The cost over four years of the budget boost for low-income earners is $19.5 billion. It also provides one-time payments to more than 3.9 million Australians of $75 for singles and $125 for couples to help pay their energy bills and bolsters planned spending on roads, railways and airports to $100 billion over a decade. The $7.1 billion forecast surplus for next year is up from $4.1 billion that the government predicted in its mid-year budget update. The coalition heads into an election with $43 million in budgeted but unannounced spending measures for this financial year, and more than double that for 2019-20. Net debt is forecast to be $360 billion next financial year, but the coalition is promising to eliminate it by 2020 if it retains government. The 2018-19 financial year is projected to end with a $4.2 billion deficit. The budget forecasts surpluses in each year over the forward estimates, reaching as high as $17.8 billion in 2012-22. While the government forecasts surpluses through at least 2023, it relies on some rosy economic projections. Stagnant wage growth is predicted to leap to 3.25% in 2020-21, after hardly budging for the past five years. Governments also banking on continued solid jobs growth and consumption holding up. The government has also matched Labor's commitment to end a freeze on the Medicare rebate for GP visits from the 1st of July as part of a $1.1 billion primary health care plan. Small and medium businesses have also been given another boost, with the government extending its instant asset write-off scheme from businesses with $10 million annual turnovers to those with $50 million annual turnovers. The maximum deduction will be increased from $25,000 to $30,000. The budget also tries to help the Nationals with a sizeable proportion of the $100 billion infrastructure spend dedicated to the regions. And the Reserve Bank of Australia kept its cash rate unchanged at 1.5% in April, maintaining the period of policy stability that's been in place since August 2016. And approvals to build new homes in Australia jumped sharply in February, surging by the most in over five years. According to the Australian Bureau of Statistics, total approvals rose by a mammoth 19.1%, after seasonal adjustments, logging the largest increase since September 2013. Economists have been looking for a decline in approvals of 1.8%, and the trade balance improved in February to a record surplus, following January's strong surplus. Underlying this were broadly steady exports with a rise in iron ore offsetting a decline in coal. A decline in imports was largely due to lower fuel imports, likely reflecting price effects. After surging in January, Exports of non-monetary gold did not retreat significantly in February. Taken together, the monthly trade data suggests a positive contribution from net exports towards the first quarter GDP. The monthly trade balance improved to a surplus of $4.8 billion. Underlying this was a 1% fall in imports, while exports were broadly flat in the month. And Australian online retail sales plunged in February, adding to concerns about the health of household spending, the largest part of the Australian economy. The National Australia Bank's online retail sales index slumped by 3.4% during the month in seasonally adjusted terms, the largest monthly decline on record. The sharp decline followed a 0.1% decline in January and saw annual growth in online trade slow sharply to 0.5%, also the weakest result in the history of the data series. 
On the other hand, Australian Bureau of Statistics data shows retail turnover surged by 0.8% after seasonal adjustments, breezing past expectations for a far smaller increase of 0.3%. This was above every economist's forecast offered to Bloomberg. Australian property prices continued their slide last month as prospective buyers delayed purchases until after national elections and tougher lending standards make it harder to obtain financing. Housing values in the combined state and territory capitals fell 0.7% in March, to be down 8.2% from a year earlier, according to CoreLogic data. The nation's two biggest cities remained at the forefront of the slump. Sydney prices fell 0.9% last month and are now down 13.9% from their mid-2017 peak, while Melbourne values dropped 0.8% to be 10.3% below their peak. While nationally the pace of declines is slowing, the downturn has become more widespread. Prices fell in most regional areas and six of the eight capital cities last month, with only Hobart in the black. Canberra was unchanged. And momentum in Australia's manufacturing sector slowed in March, weighed down by the downturn in the housing market, caution ahead of the federal election and the ongoing impact of the drought in the eastern states. The Australian Industry Group's performance of manufacturing index fell to 51 last month in seasonally adjusted terms, down three percentage points on the level reported in February. This PMI measures perceived changes in activity levels across Australia's manufacturing sector from one month to the next. Anything above 50 signals that activity levels are improving, while a reading below suggests they're deteriorating. The distance away from 50 indicates how quickly activity levels are expanding or contracting. So, at 51, activity levels still improved last month, albeit marginally. Australia just received another ugly and concerning report card on its economic slowdown. The services sector, the largest employer in the country, is going backwards in early 2019. The Australian Industry Group's Performance of Services Index stood at 44.8 in March after seasonal adjustments, logging the first three-peat of sub-50 readings for the first time since early 2016. And Labor has unveiled Australia's first National Electric Vehicles Policy Package, which include a National Electric Vehicles target of 50% of all new car sales by 2030, a government fleet target of 50% by 2025, and tax deductions for businesses purchasing electric vehicles. And industry's 250 heaviest polluters will face possible penalties for breaching new emissions caps under long-awaited details of Labor's ambitious climate change policy. All carbon-intensive sectors of the economy will contribute to achieving Labor's goal of cutting emissions by 45% on 2005 levels by 2030, well above the coalition's target of 26 to 28%. Also, agriculture will not be slugged by the baseline and credit scheme. Instead, it will contribute through increased carbon farming. Farmers being paid to offset carbon emissions by other sectors through such measures as growing trees and managing their soil. There will also be nationwide bans on large-scale land clearing. And the costs to the major banks of remediating misconduct could top $6 billion by the end of next year, as analysts and former banking executives warn the torrid experience of shareholders in the United Kingdom offers a guide to what lies ahead. The experience of Britain's banks with compensation should worry local investors. JP Morgan analysts Andrew Triggs and Nicholas Dalton last week increased their estimates for remediation costs by $125 million for the ANZ and Commonwealth Bank and $300 million for the National Australia Bank after Westpac said compensation costs could wipe $260 million off its half-year profit. The analysts said the revisions would shave between 1% and 3% off full-year net profit of ANZ, CBA and NAB, 
as they increased their forecast for total remediation provisions across the big four banks by $500 billion to $1.85 billion. And BHP is reviewing its full-year guidance as a fallout from Cyclone Victoronica on its Western Australian iron ore operations continues to limit train movements at the company's port facilities. The miner said as a preliminary estimate, it expected the extreme weather event would reduce its iron ore production for the year by 6 to 8 million tonnes. And former Commonwealth Bank Chief Executive Ian Narev has been offered a new role by job-hunting website Seek. Mr Narev, 51, had kept a low profile during the Banking Royal Commission and had undertaken what CBA called an early retirement in early 2018. He'll become Seek's new Chief Operating Officer and Chief Executive of its Asia-Pacific and Americas Division for April 29. In a statement, Seek said that Mr Narev would work closely on strategy development and operating priorities for the Seek Group overall, with its CEO, Andrew Bassett. And that's it for this week. And next week I have a great chat with Yaniv Bernstein, Airtasker's Vice President of Engineering. And then I have a great chat with RMIT economist Sinclair Davidson, analysing the Morrison government's election budget. And of course I'll be bringing you all the week's news. In the meantime, you can find me on Twitter at TalkingBizBeatableZ, on Facebook and on LinkedIn. And if you want, leave a comment. Wishing you all a great week. Take care, be good, and looking forward to bringing you Talking Business next week. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. 